Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest in this episode is Trevor Flanagan, COO of Flint Group, a home services roll-up founded by Colin Hathaway. Colin's appeared on this podcast twice, on episodes 32 and 90, for good reason, and I highly recommend listening to those episodes as a primer for this conversation with Trevor. Trevor has a fascinating background, as I'll touch on early in this episode. He started his career as a district manager for Aldi before becoming GM of Bob Hamilton, a home services business in Kansas City. He then left and co-founded Professional Chats, which offers website chat software to home services businesses before selling it two years later. In those two years, he and his co-founder grew from three to 150 employees and nearly $10 million in revenue. Soon after selling, he met Colin and joined Flint. Our conversation covers how great companies scale, how crucial of a role sales and hiring play in scaling, the role of debt, and everything in between. Like Colin, Trevor has an amazing ability to make hard problems simple and teach through storytelling. And I'm positive you'll enjoy hearing his story. Enjoy. Today's sponsor Q&A is with Oakborn Advisors, an independent retirement plan consulting firm that helps small companies design and implement great retirement plans for their teams. We're joined by Matt Reba to talk about the most common issues CEOs run into with retirement plans. What does it mean to get your 401k benchmarked and why should a business do it? So benchmarking your company's 401k plan is an essential exercise that should be done every two to three years. The process examines your plan through two lenses, and that's pricing and plan design. Depending on the size of your plan, benchmarking could uncover the opportunity to save the business and or the employees thousands of dollars a year. And that's because the real cost of a 401k plan is hard to figure out. Fees can be charged by multiple vendors to both the business and participants, and it's never laid out on a consolidated invoice. A benchmarking exercise will analyze all the fees and determine whether or not they're competitive for the kind of plan you're offering. So the second thing is plan design. Plan design can turn into a lengthy conversation, but in the efforts to keep things simple, if you answer yes to any of the following questions, then evaluating how your plan is designed will in many cases deliver immediate value. Do you wish your staff spent less time answering questions about rollovers, loans, hardship withdrawals, and any other details related to your plan? Does your company have employees with significantly larger salaries than others? Has your plan ever had to issue corrective distributions? Or do you wish you could reduce your fiduciary liability as it relates to the plan? That's just the tip of the iceberg of plan design. But the takeaway here is that good plan design may reduce the people power it takes to administer the plan and makes for a better benefit for your employees. The great thing about having your 401k plan benchmark is that it's a win-win situation for everyone involved. You either get the reassurance from a professional team that everything is in good order, or a list of ways to potentially save money, improve your plan, and adhere to your duties as a plan fiduciary. If you're interested in a complimentary benchmark of your company's 401k plan, head to oakborn.com slash think or contact Matt directly at mryba at oakborn.com. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Well, I think one place that would be interesting to start is just hearing about kind of the companies that you've worked in that have scaled. There's a lot of different things that you've done, even just outside home services. I'd love to hear kind of your perspective on what scaling companies look like across a couple of different case studies that you've been a part of. 
Yeah. So I, uh, whenever I graduated, I worked for a discount grocery store, Aldi for a while. And one of the best things I learned at Aldi was like what a billion dollar like playbook looks like. And so I'm 22 years old as a district manager, like managing a hundred employees. And I look like I was a child at the time. Cause I was like 130 pounds and six, two I've gained weight since then. And back then I got really good advice from a peer and he said, you know, just become a subject matter expert. There's all these binders at a billion dollar company that say how to do the thing. And so I just did what he told me to. I read the books, you know, here's how to run a store. Here's how to run inventory. Here's how to run a district. And I just got really good at being a subject matter expert. So then if somebody came to me with a problem, I could help them find where the answer is, not always give the answer, but show them where I know where it's at. And then I'm at least a resource. And so doing that was really helpful. And then whenever I left that grocery store, I got really great experience turning over some really unprofitable districts in Des Moines, Cedar Falls, Iowa, uh, Champaign, Urbana, Decatur area, uh, Minneapolis. And I left because retail is, is rough and I wanted to get out. And I came back to Kansas City and I started working at a plumbing company that I found an ad off of Craigslist. And I just thought that small business would be interesting. And so I went in for the interview and like a typical small business, the, uh, the owner interviewed me and he forgot I was coming in for the interview. And he said, oh, I forgot you were coming in. Well, I, I'll interview you anyway. And I was like, oh, this is weird. And then he proceeds to tell me like at the end of our really solid conversation slash interview, that he already filled the position that I came in to interview for. He's like, well, our one service manager is going to do plumbing and HVAC. And I was like, oh, that's a bummer. And he said, but you have a really great attitude. Would you come here for a lot less money and manage the office? And I didn't have a job at the time. I went to University of Missouri, Kansas City Business School, and the MBA program was just super easy. So I was looking for a job because it was not a full-time program. And so my math was like, a little bit of money is better than zero money. And so I just came in, I accepted the job. And in our first month, I, I noticed all these things that weren't all that dissimilar from like an unprofitable or, you know, one of the grocery stores that I'd seen not functioning very well. And like, I remember my first day, all the customer service reps that were answering the phones, they, they left at 12 o'clock or they were heading out the door. And I said, where are you guys going? They said, Oh, we're going to lunch. I was like, well, who's going to answer the phones? They said, oh, somebody will. No, they won't. They just rang and like they rang and rang and rang. And so the next day they came in and they all had schedules like you're at 11 o'clock, you're at 12 o'clock, you're at one o'clock. Like it's not complex stuff, but it needed to be done. And then we answered more phones during that hour period and we made more money and that created a little bit of growth. And I went into the owner's office and I said, hey, if I can grow us 20% this year and still keep double digit operating profit, can I have a raise and a promotion? And I was asking for this, you know, raise and a promotion 10 months ahead of time with like a thing they've never achieved because they've been doing 7 million four years in a row. And he's like, sure. Like it's a really easy promotion to give 10 months ahead of time. And we did, we grew 35% that first year and then 35% then 35%. And in four years we grew from 7 million to 25 million. And we went from 11% operating profit to 21% operating profit. And it was, it was fantastic. It was just working the model every single day. And I'm not a creative person. So once I figure out what the model is, 
and just do that over and over and over again and then add people to it instead of try and find a way to make more off of what we have you just kind of scale up the infrastructure for what works so that worked really well but then in 2017 he decided to sell the business and i he came to my office and he said i think i'm going to sell the business and i said well i think that makes a ton of sense because it's easier to split a pile of money 12 ways than it is a company and he had 12 kids and some of them were like in high school and some of them were working in the business and some of them weren't and my job was always to do what's best for the owner as the general manager i just wanted to make sure that i was looking out for him and so he said I think I'm going to sell the business. I thought it was a great decision at 22% operating profit for a plumbing company. That's, you know, kind of as good as it gets. So prior, like about a year prior to that, we had a bunch of plumbing and HVAC owners come to our shop and try and learn how to do what we were doing. Cause it was pretty abnormal for the industry, how fast we were growing. And it was a really well curated event that went three days. And at the end of the three days, those owners were supposed to give feedback to Bob for like what they saw and their recommendations and their Bob was the owner. And the recommendation was you should give Trevor some equity, like put some golden handcuffs on this kid because it's going really well. And I didn't even have an appreciation for what equity was at the time. I didn't really understand it. And I was just grateful. Like he could have given me 0.0001% profit units. And I would have been like, call myself a co-owner and, and been so happy. But that never happened. So whenever he came to my office and said he was going to sell, I, I, I took the opportunity to be a little frustrated. And I talked to one of my buddies who was starting a website chat company. And that website chat company was kind of in its infancy. And I was just trying to help him think about like, this is how I'd structure it. And this is kind of how I'd set up sales. And he kept on saying like, why don't you do this with me? Why don't you do this with me? And so when, as soon as Bob left my office that day that he said he wanted to sell, I called up my friend Scott and I said, Hey, how about we do that together? And we went to dinner like that week. We came to terms on how we were going to split up the company. And then I went in and I quit the plumbing company. So, so backing up, how did you get a job managing a grocery store at 22? Like that's what, like backing way up. Like how, how did that start? <laughs> yeah. So that's funny. I so backing all the way back up into undergrad, I went to Mizzou for for college, even though my my guidance counselor said, like, you can't afford to go to Mizzou. She was right, because college costs money, but you don't know that as an 18 year old. And I went to Mizzou anyway. And that first semester, I found out, oh, my gosh, like, college is expensive, like student loans cover, like, just a tiny little piece. And I, I needed to cover the whole piece myself. So I got a job being a janitor and I was a janitor for the student unions and I, I was a really happy, good janitor. Like I worked at nights every night of the week and I cleaned up the rooms and I set up rooms for meetings the next day. And I, I set up meetings for the chancellor and the vice chancellor for all their events. And they loved me apparently because the chancellor and the vice chancellor asked me to interview to work for them after I'd been there for a year. And I said, no, I'm, I'm fine. I've been, you know, a happy-go-lucky janitor and I even got two like assistant janitors to work with me and I was like a manager at this point and I was making you know fine money not anything to write home about but it paid for the school and kept me out of trouble which was important and my they went to my boss after I told them no and my boss said you're not allowed to tell them no so 
I uh, begrudgingly interviewed for the position to be chairman for student organizations on campus. And I got a staff of six or seven people that worked for me. We doled out student funds to all the student organizations, including the Greek organizations on campus. And I trained people on how to write grant proposals. And it was like this weird world that I was kind of schlepped into of like having some like leadership and management experience right out of the gate. So then whenever I was graduating in 2009, that's not a great time to be graduating school. I interviewed for a lot of jobs. And one of the jobs I interviewed was Aldi to be a store manager in St. Louis. And so I got the on-campus interview. And then the second interview was going out to St. Louis. And the vice president came out the first day and he said, we are not hiring any store managers. So, you know, just get really good experience here. Like, you know, we want to keep good relationships up with the university. We just don't have that position available. And so I just did what he told me to. And I I made a good experience out of it. And I was pretty pumped because they're paying 51 cents a, a mile for gas in Columbia to St. Louis. I made some money off of interviewing all day. I thought this is the craziest thing. And then whenever I got back after that day, I got a call about a week later from that same vice president, Paul. He said, you know, we, we were really impressed with you. I said, well, awesome. I really thought you had a pretty neat operation. And he said, we actually think you'd make a better district manager than a store manager. And I said, oh, that's cool. And he said, and we don't have that position available either. He said, but I called around to all the VPs in the country and I found a spot in Minneapolis for you all you need to do is interview with them and the job is yours. And I said, no, similar to not taking the job with the university. I I really wanted to come back and work for Cerner in Kansas City and hang out with all my friends. So I was like, I'm not really interested. And he said, well, just take the interview anyway and just see if it's a fit. And, you know, you can make your, your decision from there. And in the meantime, Cerner was kind of on a hiring freeze because they didn't know if they were going to get the affordable care contract. They do IT for healthcare systems. And so they called me and they said, we're on a a hiring freeze. And so I, the only job that kind of made sense was to go work for Aldi up in Minneapolis. And I took the job and I just dedicated my life to becoming a subject matter expert, I suppose. So within that experience, when you, you talked about going to a couple different Aldi locations that were struggling and trying to find ways to turn them around, What do you think, what was most commonly struggling at each of those locations? Well, so that's a great question. Back then, I did not have the appreciation for emotional intelligence that I have today. Whenever you work for a really big company, you can just slice and dice people and just get a new person in. And so the way I turned around those organizations really early on was like fire everybody and like hire all new people. Part of that's just because I think that there's like, is it a problem with training or is there a problem with willingness? And like in really big companies, they do such a good job of force feeding training to you that most of the time, if like something's underperforming because it's such a machine, there's, it's usually a people problem. And so I felt like George Clooney from up in the air, I like went into a district and I just like was like the Terminator and I like have like PTSD because like I just like went through and just fired people nonstop. I was like, it was a hard job, but I was really good at it from the standpoint of like going through the process of having the conversations and documentation and, and doing all the things and then hiring people very quickly that were pretty awesome. But they also had the benefit of being a very large company with a tremendous pipeline of people that wanted to work for you. 
And so whenever you go into any metro and you're one of the known as one of the better hirers, it's really easy to kind of use that turnaround methodology to, you know, upgrade your talent. With small businesses, you can't do that because nobody knows who you are and it's really hard to get people to apply to begin with. And so it's, it, I've had to adapt quite a bit and moving to a smaller middle market kind of business unit and I've have so much more appreciation for emotional intelligence and like kind of working with the team that you have and trying to upgrade and really kind of giving it a go to make sure that you've done everything possible because they haven't been force fed training from a corporate bureaucracy to make sure that they know what they're doing sometimes and you need to make sure that expectations were given and it was clearly communicated what the expectations needed to be before they got terminated. So taking that experience and then the experience with the plumbing business and HVAC business, when you went to join your friend to start the the chat business, how did you set up the systems for hiring, training, people management, and given all of this other experience that you've had? Yeah, so the, the chat business, when we went to dinner, Scott and I, that one night that we agreed to partner up, we said we were going to do it for two years and we were going to grow a business to $10 million in revenue. And we, we came really close, which is like shocking. We went from zero to 150 employees in 18 months and we sold to Updata Partners out of DC. Our transaction took six months because nobody's bought a chat company. And so like the diligence process was pretty untenable. They're like, what, what KPIs do you track? And we're like, we track this one. And it's like the business was only a year and a half old. And we're like, we like change KPIs during the diligence process. We're like, we look at this one now. And they're like, wait, I thought you guys said this. So the way we grew the chat company was wild. I mean, we, we put the plan down. We, we kind of, I'm very firm on like a budgeting process from kind of like a bottoms up model. And I find that most businesses to some degree have a conversion rate, an average sale, and a number of opportunities on like the sales side. And how they like kind of receive that revenue might look a little bit different. You might have an account that's reoccurring. You might have a, a business that orders multiple times a year, but more or less you can start planning your business around those three, whether it's conversion rate, average sale, and number of opportunities or number of at-bats. And so we did a bottoms up model for like what we were going to do and how we were going to get to 10 million. And it was challenging. And I come from a world where like a plumbing background and a grocery background where you don't lose money on business. And the chat business was somewhat of a tech business. We had a, a tech, a technology that we developed with a local programming partner, Crema that did an exceptional job for us. And we kind of had to build in the growth of being able to afford the program and be able to afford the people. And because of all of that, and we bootstrapped the whole thing ourselves, we didn't have the ability to lose money. And so one of the most interesting things we did, and my partner deserves all the credit for it because he, he's, a, he's a brilliant marketer and a brilliant salesperson, and he's just a brilliant guy. Um, Scott Hansen's his name is he was used to going to orthodontic conventions with his mom because that's what business he came up in and that's what his mom did for a living. And he would go to these conventions and because the orthodontist is working Monday through Friday, Monday through Thursday, 
when they go to the convention, they buy things. So they like they'll buy full-on websites, they'll buy massage chairs for their lobby, they'll buy digital vendors, they'll buy everything, and they'll actually swipe credit cards at these conventions. You go to a plumbing convention or a chiropractor convention or a legal convention, nobody's swiping credit cards in a trade show booth. And so he was just so used to it. It was so foreign to him to not do that. And so right out of the gate, one of the things that we kind of modeled into our bottoms of projection was how many starts we're going to get. And the start was the sign-up fee for the chat. And so the startup fee started at something like $300 because we know free doesn't sell. Like giving people a free anything does not capture them as a customer. So we charge a $300 startup fee. Then we take that $300 and we use that on people and software and all the things that we need. And then we'd go live 45 days later with that customer. And so nobody was really like aware of the fact that their startup fee was basically the funding for our entire business model. But while we like, we kind of like January, we were for simplicity's sake, January, we probably want to sell like six accounts and then February, we we're going to sell 10 accounts. And then it was kind of like an exponential increase through the year. And by, you know, month 18, we were selling over a hundred accounts and our startup fee was different per vertical. So with, orthodontists and dentists and chiropractors, it might've been like $600 with home service customers. It was like a thousand dollars and the model still worked. It was 45 days later, we'd use all that influx of cash and we'd hire people. And towards the end, it was getting a little bit challenging. We'd actually bring in a training class of between 10 and 20 chat representatives that, cause all of our people were here in Kansas city and we would have to hire them up to be able to support the in influx of volume that we'd have coming up. They go into a two week training period where we had a full-time trainer that trained them on, you know, kind of grammar expectations, how to use empathy, all the things that, you know, a good chat representative should have. And they take a test at the end of their first week on grammar and core values and some of the things that we expect from our people. We grade it and we give it back to them on Friday. And we'd say, you're going to take this test at the end of your second week. If you don't get a 95% or above, you don't have a job here. And then we would do that. They would take the same test at the end of their second week. And if they failed, if they got less than 95%, they, we did not hire them. So the you know 10 to 20 people that we hired would go to 5 to 15 or 12, depending on the volume that we had and based off of what we needed. And I, I think it was helpful because we just were very firm on the quality. All of our customers that were using our chat product had an average sale of you know, between a thousand and ten thousand dollars, like it was used car dealerships and plumbers and HVAC and orthodontists and legal profession, and there was just an expectation from us because they're part we're part of their sales cycle that the quality was really high, and we were unflinching in our need to deliver that, and so we would over hire to be able to like wean back. It was an expensive way to do it, but we didn't have really a whole lot of options with the numbers that we projected and what we needed to do to hit our model. And when you say you went from six startup fees to over a hundred by the time, you know, 18 months rolled around, how did, where did that growth come from? Was that a function of enough conferences or other marketing campaigns or word of mouth? Like where, where did that growth come from? It's all of the above. We were very aggressive I think one of the most underappreciated and underutilized pieces of being a small business is the ability to be dynamic. 
and you lose it, the larger your organization gets, it becomes more complicated. The hierarchy becomes kind of larger and you know it's hard to pass communications through. Whenever you're all sitting in a room, it's really easy to say, hey, let's try this. Hey, let's try this. And you can share successes and you can move so fast towards what works and stop doing what's not. And we did an incredible job of like moving fast towards the things that did well and moving away from the things that didn't. A couple of the things that did really well for us Conferences were fantastic. We used the same model for orthodontia conferences at plumbing and dental and auto dealerships and legal conferences, which is swiping at the booths. And it was so disarming. Like whenever we would go to a plumbing convention where nobody's ever sold anything on the trade show floor in their entire life, they just hand out pamphlets and they're like, call you next week. Scott, my partner's like, how dumb is that? I was like, what do you mean? He's like, that's the owner of the business. Why would they not buy our stuff right now? And I was like, well, that's a good point. And he's like, let's just ask them to buy. And I was like, novel concept. And so we just did it. And like they were, nobody else was doing it. I had other people at trade show booths. They'd come up and be like, did you swipe that guy's credit card? And I'm like, yeah, he bought the thing that we saw. He's like, oh, wow, that's so wild. So that was huge. And then the book, Predictable Revenue, was awesome for us. It's a, uh, basically rolls out a SaaS sales process from a SDR to an AE to a project manager. And that's how we set up our business in that same frame. The kind of the thesis is that the same person that's good at like cold calling is not the best closer. And the best person to close something is not the best person to start up an account and like kind of do that project management. When you're early in your business cycle, you have to have one person do all of that. Like, but as the business grows, you have to kind of get away from that and slot people into the right seat on the bus, depending on their talents, because rainmakers do not want to cold call a million people. That's just not the way they work. Like they're just not going to do it. And if that's the only way to get a sale, you have to have like figure out how can we have somebody else do this piece and then warm transfer over to the person that's good at locking it down. We're a half hour in. We haven't even talked about Flint. How did you eventually get to Flint? Yeah, so I sold the the chat business in 2018. And in 2019, I was up in Seattle and Colin and I just knew each other from being in the industry. He'd, he'd done really impressive things already with Wrench Group and he's kind of a known commodity in the plumbing HVAC space. And whenever I was in Seattle, I asked him if he wanted to go to dinner. And so we did a, we did dinner in early 2019. I want to say it was like March and it was like, we didn't drink. I think he was not drinking to lose weight and I was not drinking to, because I don't think it's right to drink by yourself. I think that that's a really lonely thing to do. Colin says that if it was the other way around and I was not drinking to lose weight, he would have definitely been drinking beer, but I'm also the anchor on the fun ship Flint. So we had like a four hour dinner and we just got along so well that at the end of it, he was like, Hey, I was going to do the the wrench thing again. Do you want to do it with me? And I said, well, that's a really interesting thing. Let me think about it. Like I wasn't working and we talked it out and, you know, very quickly we, we partnered up. And so we launched Flint in June of 2019. We closed on our first business in July of 2019, like three days later. So we were doing diligence and closing the fund at the same time. And like, even coming up with our name. I remember like I coming up with all the different things like 
Colin's from Flint, Michigan, so that's where the name comes from. But we were just like, it was so scrappy at the very beginning and it was so fun, still is. And then it's just gone so fast. So since June of 2019, we've bought six companies. One didn't quite work out. It was a smaller company that we kind of took a gamble on. We sold that for equity in a a separate business outside of Flint. And then we have six companies now we're operating inside of Flint Group, all residential plumbing, HVAC electrical companies, no new construction. And we operate in Seattle, Portland, Houston, Boston, and Denver. Right now, we have about 600 employees across the six brands, and we do about $125 million in revenue. So like in three years, it's just like kind of like blazing fast. I, it's been really, really fun. And Colin and I have really worked well, well together. And I think that's one of the biggest surprises for both of us is you never expect like partnerships to go as well as this one has. Yeah, absolutely. What's the scaling been like at the Flint level? Like you've been inside businesses that have grown and increased revenue, but maybe not through you know, more of a private equity group where the scale is happening by adding these organizations so quickly. What's that been like for you? So we run very decentralized. Any of the businesses that we buy have a pretty large kind of, they're, they're larger for their market. And so as a byproduct, they have management positions and they have a pretty solid local management structure. And so for a very long time, it was just me and Colin, where we got started to get pinched was we raised a fund to be able to deploy the capital to buy all these companies and just the fund management and reporting requirements on all of that as we were continuing to buy these companies was, you know, pinching us a little bit because both of us operate in the business pretty heavily as well, just trying to hire where we can or support the companies. And so the first position at Flint Group that we hired was a VP of finance. Andy Thomas works here in Kansas City and he's our VP of finance. He's fantastic. And that was such a huge weight lifted from Colin and myself. So we didn't have to do some of that stuff and we could dig in a little bit with the companies. And then as we continued to acquire, I want to say in, it was in probably late 2021, we promoted our recruiter from our Portland company to our VP of people, Ashley Bacon. She's exceptional and she helps continue to pour into our recruiting team. We have a recruiter at each one of our portfolio companies and just kind of share best practices and and help keep the recruiting flywheel running. And then we also hired a chief of staff. Austin Sonker works here in Kansas City and he's been kind of like pitching in wherever is necessary. There's always a, a special project. His ability to pull data and help all of our GMs at each company kind of have transparency with each other's information has been super valuable. And Austin kind of heads a lot of that up and there's always a project to be working on for him. That's fantastic. I want to ask you a lot about how companies scale, but I'm first curious to hear a little bit more about the the opposite. So of the companies that you've seen, are there any consistent themes you've seen for why companies don't scale or fail to? Yeah, I mean, that's a, definitely a loaded question. I think what I've seen most recently, and I think that this is probably most relevant for your search listeners, is that I've seen a lot of companies that are run by like a late in life seller before, you know, they kind of transition it. And those, those cultures are so different. The business owners get older and they value uh, creating a lifestyle business and they like taking vacations and they like going on a houseboat for six months and coming back to a business that hasn't changed. I 
don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think whenever a searcher comes into a business that doesn't scale, it's oftentimes because they don't know how to run the business and they're taking over a business that is pretty sleepy in its own culture and its own growth. And so if you always do what's been done for the last 10 years through a semi-retired owner, you're going to get what they got as well, which is kind of slow growth and no changes if you go on vacation. And I think the best thing, if you want to grow a company or if you don't want to take the risk of not growing and having you know high inflation kind of artificially push down your growth, you have to cut out that kind of sleepy culture as fast as possible because it's so damaging. I mean, we've gotten a couple of companies that had that and it's just, it's nuanced in the approach. Like it's really hard to just kind of like look and say, oh, that's part of it. Stop doing that thing. That's part of the sleepy culture. It's just kind of like the day to day. It's like the, the amount of hours people work. It's about the decisions they make. It's people kind of like not being aggressive in the next move or not being aggressive on hiring all of those things kind of catch up to you. And I think that it's definitely understated. And uh, the faster you can cut out that kind of like sleepy culture and bring in really energized talent, the faster you can grow that business. I'm a firm believer that people grow businesses. And to that end, if you have the wrong people, they're not going to grow your business. So obviously you can't clean house like you might at Aldi's. So how do you adjust that culture as quickly as possible without breaking too many things? Yeah, I found that oftentimes, even in these sleepy cultures, there's a lot of people that are really eager for growth. I think people in general are eager. They're not eager for change, but people like to win just as a byproduct. And so I think one of the first things you can put in place to kind of level set what winning looks like is literally to create and find and articulate KPIs that help every person in the company know whether they won or lost for the day. And it's so simple, but if somebody walks away from a company for the day and they have no idea whether it was a good day or a bad day, you're not doing your job as an operator. And so your job is to make sure that they know what winning looks like and what losing looks like. And like they want to win more. And I think that you don't need to necessarily gut it you just need to like kind of articulate something that's never been articulated. And the people that want to win, they're going to step up and do more. And the people that are not interested in like kind of like that kind of winning culture, they'll probably opt out. So you won't even have to do anything. So how do you decide? How do you figure out what uh, KPIs are most important for certain roles? Like I imagine eventually you kind of figure out as you work with enough home services businesses, you kind of know which ones to look for. But how do you kind of initially design those KPIs to help folks track what they're working on? Yeah, I think most of the time I just ask people what, what their KPIs are. I think if you are like being the man and you're telling them this is the number, like that rarely is a recipe for success. I think if you ask somebody, hey, what is a number that you think is success in your position? One, they know their job better than you know their job. And two, they're probably going to give you a number that makes sense because they know their job. And so I would just show them the mirror more so than tell them what their number is. If you say, you know, how many listeners is success in a single podcast, you know, you'd be able to say like, oh, it's, you know, 3000 people or 4000 people. And then every week I would say, hey, how many listeners did we get? And then if you said 2000, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to change this and I'm going to change this and I'm going to get up to 3000. And it's as simple as that. Showing people the mirror has a, a huge impact 
and just kind of pushing them to like make the changes necessary. So once you have that initial culture established and folks know their KPIs, what are kind of the next pieces for scaling home services business? Yeah, so I got really good advice from a, a guy that's been doing this for a long time. He runs a group that's about five times the size of Flint. And whenever I was building out, we actually moved into five new buildings in the last 24 months with five of our companies. So our our buildings are all like, you know, 35 to 45,000 square feet now. I'd never designed out a 45,000 square foot building before, but I'm very in tune to like what works and doesn't work as far as like workflows in the office translates into success in the P&L. And so because I'd never done it before, I asked this guy for help and we had a Zoom and I showed him the space and he gave me some really, really great advice that saved us millions of dollars, I'm sure, because he probably already made those mistakes and I'd prefer not to make them. But at the end of our call, I asked him like, what's the best advice that you have for me? And he gave like, he said, the hardest thing to do as the owner of a business is to figure out what works and then just keep doing that. So there's a tendency as a business starts to be more successful for you to think I need to be more creative or let's change this. And it's like a gut punch to the success of the company. Instead of like changing the thing, the, the formula that you know is successful, just add more people to the formula that is more successful. And that's scale. I think that everybody thinks that as their workload decreases as an operator, because things start like moving the way they should as far as process and, you know, they're individual workload goes down that they need to like stick a wrench in it and try and fix something is like, do not do that. Just add people if uh, you can to the thing that works really well or move and add more people to the next thing. I mean, that is scale is just being able to add more personnel to a working machine and make more revenue off of the same platform. So what's that look like for you? Like you walk through maybe a case study example of one formula, one aspect that's really been working at a particular company and how you just added more people to that formula? Yeah, I mean, in a, a very simple sense, if we come in and there's, you know, 10 plumbers, whenever we buy a company, usually the flywheel is like calls come into the business. We have technicians that go to the calls, you know, run the jobs that people have broken things. We fix those things with some kind of a sales process, which sales gets a little bit of a dirty word, but it's more about offering options and being able to educate customers on what else they can do inside the home. If I have a master plumber inside my home, the thing that broke is not the only thing I probably want fixed. And if they give options for that, I'm going to say yes, because it's a time saver. And then continuing to train and develop our people, hiring more technicians, and then marketing for more calls. And so that flywheel can keep on spinning. And so if there's 10 plumbers when we start and where I most often see it is that we're canceling, uh, an average plumber can run three calls a day. And if we're canceling three calls a day, or if we're rescheduling three calls a day, that's one plumber. So instead of just continually like rescheduling those three calls, let's hire one more plumber. And usually it's not as fine as that. Usually it's like, we're rescheduling 12 calls a day and six of them are canceling out of the 12 because they found somebody sooner. And usually it's, it's, it's that, that we can kind of hone in on. It's like, Oh my gosh, let's hire two plumbers. Like let's hire three plumbers and see if we can keep up with that. Because 
if you don't, you end up kind of running the flywheel. And the easier thing to do is spend more money on marketing. And then you spend more money on marketing and you don't actually get the pickup in revenue because it's the same number of bodies able to run more calls. And so you just end up canceling more calls. And so being really in tune with where in the flywheel you need to put the resources into to make sure that you're not kind of like spilling money out. If you over hire for plumbers and you don't invest in training and the options and the, you know, making sure you're giving them attention, it's going to cost you somewhere else. So being pretty in tune and, you know, that flywheel is not all that complicated, but growing a business really isn't all that complicated either. Is there an order that makes sense that you like to do? Do you like to hire first before marketing? Or is it, like you said, kind of depends on where you are? It really, it depends on the business. So I think of operating these businesses or any business, you know, now that I've seen a variety. I also, my wife and I, we, we invest in some search funds on the side as well. And I serve on some boards there. But any of them like that I've seen, like, kind of have similar categories of business to focus on. So there's pricing, communication, marketing and customer journey is kind of one in my head, operations, recruitment and retention, finance and training. So depending on the business and depending on what's going on with it, any of those categories could be the thing that's kind of deviating and needs a little bit more attention. And once you fix it, then you don't probably hop over to another category. We have kind of a, we have a playbook, like a literal playbook with Flint that kind of walks through each of those categories. And each one has like sub functions of like, is this working the way it should? Is this working the way it should? It should? And, you know, we just focus on like one or two things a quarter that we can improve on any given business. One might be working a lot more on like building out their training regimen. Another one might be working on making sure their communication is tight with their employees. I firmly believe in one-on-ones every week with every employee and weekly meetings with every group of employees. And they might just need some structure around it. They might need to know how to run a good meeting and how to keep people's attention because the other piece of that is if you're going to have somebody come in for an, you know 15 minutes to an hour and spend one-on-one time with you, you better deliver value to that team member for the time that you're taking for them. Same thing with a meeting, like don't have a meeting, just to have a meeting, have a plan with it. You're bringing in, you know, five to 20 people to come in for a meeting to learn from you. And if you can add value, then it was successful. But the, the categories is just kind of like floating in between which one needs your attention and having a process for all the different functions within that is, is huge. So a lot of those relate to sales generally. I mean, you mentioned it being kind of a a dirty word, but I find it really, really interesting. There's, what are some of the most like, challenging pieces with with sales in terms of like organizing a, a sales function and a team? And maybe it's more marketing for home services. I'm not sure, but would love to hear a little bit more about how you think through sales broadly, and then like what are some tactics that you you use? Yeah, broadly, I have a lot of opinions on sales. So I see, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs in Kansas City. I'm a part of a couple different mentoring groups as well. And so I see a lot of smaller companies. They're just starting up five to 15 employees. And I hear often like, we don't need a salesperson or I do most of the sales or like, and it's, it's always kind of gives me the cringe because like, I think that that, in my experience, once you have really good salespeople, really grows the business. I mean, sales is everything. And so 
I think hiring a salesperson is awesome. So that's step number one, but hiring two salespeople is even better because sales is a competition sport. And if you only have one, they're never going to reach their critical mass. Like they're never going to be able to like push themselves. It's like any kind of sport. If you're doing it against yourself versus doing it with a competitor, you go to any of those new kind of like kitschy workout classes nowadays, like the benefit of them is that there's a bunch of people there and like you're competing against other people. Same thing with sales, just a lot less sweat. So I think hiring two is awesome. And then I, like some people say, I can't afford sales. I can't afford a salesperson. And it's just not true. Like salespeople should pay for themselves. That's like the job. And so they like finding the right salesperson is way, way harder. And I've found, and it's so fascinating to me still, that there's a spectrum of sales. At the very far end on one side, you have hunters that will cold call and find people and knock on doors and do whatever it takes and and find the people and, and close the sales. On the other end, you have order takers. And depending on the sales environment of the company they're in, they're on one side or the other, and some of them are in the middle. But the order takers think they're salespeople. And so if you're looking for a salesperson to join your company, they all have the same title. They all think they've done sales before and they only know the experience that they've had. But if you're a small business that doesn't have a brand and doesn't have like an influx of, of people calling your business or submitting, you know, sign me up on your website, like the people that are order takers are going to do very bad at that job. Like it, or it's going to be a huge learning curve for them. And so I think being very comfortable with knowing this person might not be good for us and being able to like move on from that person and rehire for the position is going to be a natural piece of building out a sales department, especially on an early stage business. Because when you find the right person, they're going to like crush it and you're going to be like, holy cow, I wish they, I would have found them years ago, but it's just, they're not falling off of trees. It's just such a huge spectrum of being able to find the right fit that is kind of able to do what you need them to do. And then beyond finding the person, what I've also found, and we experienced this at professional chats, is that your sales compensation might change. And it, you have to be able to change it. Because what I've found is if you're really early stage, say like in our example, you're selling six accounts early on, well, by the you know, end of the year, you're selling 100 accounts or 100 new orders. If your sales plan has not changed. You're starting to pay that salesperson like $300,000 while at the beginning they're you know, making like 70. And you need to be able to have the conversations and readjust and you might lose salespeople if the conversation goes bad. But I think some operators think like, well, that's not fair. And it's like, well, you can fair yourself out of business. I've seen a lot of companies fair themselves in bankruptcy. Like you can't, like you don't make that much money as an organization that you can just continue to pour good money after like bad. And sometimes at the very beginning, you as the operator end up selling a lot of the accounts and doling out those commissions to a salesperson that works for you and kind of sharing in that. I think it's such a, it it makes sense. And I think it has to be something that you make a big deal out of like, oh, I'm going to give you commission on this one that I sold. But I think it can oftentimes create really bad habits of like, oh, if I sell something, the salesperson gets it as well. It's the commission for it. I'm like, like, so like, that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like, and they're like, yeah, we've just always done it that way. And so sales organizations are are really important for an organization, but any important function in a business that should take a, a good chunk of your time 
to make sure that it's set up correctly, make sure that you're incentivizing the correct behaviors and just pour attention and training and thoughtfulness into the roles that you have. Yeah, I'd love to break down incentives here coming up shortly, but first starting with bringing sales folks into your team. So you mentioned that spectrum for different types of salespeople. How do you identify the good ones from each end of the spectrum and the middle? And then how do you like how do you design a training program? I'd love to hear how you think through the hiring and training of good salespeople. That's great. Great question. I don't have a great way to do that. With with the HVAC and plumbing space, we have a process. And so we run a process and people will ultimately get sales out of it. But I would not say that I've done an amazing job, especially at the early stage, like with professional chats of kind of developing out a sales routine. I more so hired for the people that said they could do it. Similar to hiring like a controller or a marketing specialist or something like that. I think good salespeople are a specialist kind of position. And I think sometimes we feel the burden of having to like teach them how to do the job like we do some of the other roles in our business where, oh, this is how I used to do it. Salespeople, like once you find a good one, oftentimes I had that good one train the next one because I can't do in sales what a really good salesperson can do. That's just not the way I'm wired. So I think just really aggressively going after and hiring the first one and then recognizing what success looks like and then just trying to replicate that one person works the best. What's your philosophy for incentivizing and compensation for sales teams? That it's, it seems like such a incentive-driven group of the company. I yeah, think. I think what I've found is that really, really good salespeople want to be fully commissioned. I mean, fully commissioned. They do not want a base. And I've, it's, it's a bit of like a, a safety net, but I've found that the people that are fully commissioned perform better than anybody else. Because, I mean, usually, you know, they're going to be making more money being fully commissioned than if they had a base and a lower commission. And that's usually, they just know that. So if you had a $50,000 base and 5% commission, the person that really wants to bet on themselves They'll say, well, give me uh, you know, an 8% commission or a 9% commission and no base because they will just try and exceed every benchmark that's been done and make it themselves. And I've seen it even in interviews. People are like, is this an option? And good salespeople are like, yeah, let's make that an option. I think good salespeople are like worth their weight in gold. I think it's such a talent to be able to sell really well. And to be able to like connect with a human being, I think that some people are just born with this innate ability that I just admire so much. Yeah, they're really impressive when you find a good one, that's for sure. We haven't talked as much about the financial side of scaling businesses. And of course, you, the chat business was bootstrapped and you said you could never run at a loss. So I imagine you know, managing cash flow was a huge piece to scaling. Like, what's your general philosophy on scaling and how cash flows help or hinder that? So the plumbing, HVAC, and electrical space is really compelling for a lot of people that have done commercial work or construction work or new construction in the past because we get paid same day. And so we get paid today by our customer. We pay for our labor next week. And we pay for our materials in 30 days. And so, you know, frankly, cash flow has never really been a huge concern for this business because, you know, it's like negative networking capital. Like it's 
it's a cash flowing machine. And I think that's part of the reason that it's really interesting to private equity right now is because, I mean, numbers don't lie. It's like recession resistant and it cash flows really well. But I think that cash flow is everything. And I think nobody looks at cash flow like the owner of a business. And we've hired a lot of general managers that are just exceptional. There's we have a, a a GM up in Seattle, Mike, that's just, he's amazing. And Tim is in Portland. Joe's over in Boston. He's been with that company for, you know, 20 years and essentially started it for the old owner. And he's just a brilliant guy. Robert's in Houston. And we're looking to fill the one in Denver right now. But I think that we've hired all these really talented people and none of them have had the burden of kind of managing cash flow before. A lot of them we hired away from like, larger companies before and you know it's so interesting colin and i look at it and it's like you know he last time colin did this a lot of the owners stayed around and so most of our owners have retired after selling their company and nobody manages cash or expenses and overhead like an owner of a business because they've seen the downtimes and they they know the value of it and for most really solid operators that come out of like a Danaher or like a Fortune 500 company, they're not focused on managing cash. That's somebody else's job. I look at cash pretty extensively because I'm really interested in what the cash can do for us long term with Flint. I mean, we raised the fund to be able to buy, you know, $100 million of revenue. We've kind of checked that box. But because these businesses cash flow so successfully, being able to use free cash flow and debt capacity with our EBITDA expansion is really interesting to me to be able to continue like perpetually adding to the portfolio and building this thing bigger and bigger and bigger. So if if cash flow isn't the constraint and we talked about sales being of course being like a huge ingredient to scale, what other impediments to scale do you focus on and are, are top of mind for you on a day-to-day basis? The biggest one is just talent. I think we're at a unique place in our business where if you're a call center manager or service manager of a $7 million business, you might still be the service manager whenever we're 30 or $50 million in revenue. But the, the role is so different. You just have so much more responsibility and scale and people and like the job looks different as the business looks different. And so I'm really in tune to like, do we have the right people and do we have the right infrastructure at all time for the next slug of growth? And I think sometimes I see this oftentimes with some of the businesses that we buy is people get really comfortable with a certain size of business and they kind of like limit themselves to where they're at. They don't want to hire the next you know, slug of managers or they don't want to invest in a big bunch of new vehicles or move into a bigger building. And I am really in tune to where is our next impediment to the next slug of growth? Like I have no interest in plateauing at like the next level. And so being able to anticipate what that level is going to be and what it's going to take to like blow past it is a huge focus for me. Where are you excited to see Flint Group evolve or or change over the next two years? A lot of our GMs are new and I'm already seeing this and I just think it's really cool is the they're starting to get their sea legs underneath them now that they've been there for, you know, 12 months. And like, I've, you know, I've been saying some of the same principles of like, let's tackle this thing. And it just takes a little longer whenever it's new for it to really settle in. 
And as they're kind of getting into the routine of being able to see the, the same season again, they're learning from like what happened last year. And they're just such great operators that they're making better decisions than I would have ever made if I were in their shoes. And I think that's just the coolest thing to watch. That is pretty cool. I'm sure you have a, a whole bunch of these, It's but I'd love to hear what's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on. I would say for that is the value of EQ over IQ. I used to think like, you know, smart people can do anything. Like if you've been to a big school or you've been working for a really large organization, you can do plumbing. Like that seems like a no brainer, but it's just not true. We've, we've seen it a few times with different hires that we've made that like the EQ is so much more important than having the IQ. Some of these companies that we buy or that we see the marketing information, some of these guys didn't graduate from, from high school even, but they're able to grow multi-million dollar, super profitable organizations. And it's because they're so emotionally intelligent and able to like work with people and be able to not only connect with the managers they had to bring in the business to grow, they're pretty high level, but they've also, they're able to connect with plumbers and warehouse employees and, you know, a customer service rep to a degree that people want to work for them. And I think that EQ is so important. And I just think it's, I wish I could put a number on it successfully on the hiring process, because if you have high EQ, you can, you can grow a small business. What are some characteristics you've noticed for folks that others are really excited to work for? I think the, the biggest one is that they're really good listeners. And people oftentimes aren't heard. I think Mike Soriano up in Seattle, he is such a good listener. Like, and he's so thoughtful, he'll pause. Tim does the same thing. He's in Portland. They like pause, they digest what you say, and then they like say, kind of repeat it back to you in some way or say something thoughtful back. And I'm like, man, they treat their people this way. Like that has to be so magnetic. And Tim came out of sales. So like I expect it from him because he's an exceptional salesperson. But like seeing Mike do it too, I'm just like, man, these guys are just so cool. And like whenever an, an installer is in a 120 degree attic and they're like breaking their back, they're thinking of like, who am I doing this for? Like, and if they connect with the person running that business, they're happy to do it. If they're like, man, that guy's a real dickhead. I should probably look for a new job. They will. And there's, they have the ability to go anywhere. And so I think that being able to connect with people, listen to your people and really just like have a presence for, for being a great impactful leader and a trust, I think is huge. Is there a piece of that, you know, in regards to EQ that you feel like you've had to work the most on? For me personally, yeah. I mean, whenever I came out of the grocery store, I was a robot. Like I had all like all IQ, no EQ. Like it was like the way the business ran. It was like a machine. It was like, if somebody's not doing this, then get rid of them and hire in the new person. And whenever I went to Bob Hamilton, the plumbing company, it was like such a shock to me. Cause I was like, Oh, like, let's just get rid of this person and let's hire the next one. And it's like, Oh yeah, you can't hire plumbers because no one's a plumber. So like, Oh, you can't hire a customer service rep. We don't have a line around the door or whatever it is. And we can't just like pay oobly gobs of money for every position just to keep people in harsh work condition because we don't have oobly gobs of money at a small business. And so I think all of those pieces kind of come together. It's like, oh, like 
what can I do to like kind of balance this relationship and make sure that, you know, we're getting the most out of people through trust and respect. And if at the end of the day, they're still not a great fit, then maybe it's time to do the termination. But I think it puts a whole lot more burden on you as the operator to make sure that you've done everything possible and own some of the responsibility of their, their performance. What's the best business you've ever seen? I think the best one I've seen lately is Bucks Analytics out of Kansas City. And it's amazing. There's a ton of small and medium-sized businesses that have like no ability to visualize their data. And Bucks is the solution. They've developed a platform that kind of sucks in all the data from a multitude of different sources. And they can use all kinds of formulas to create data visualization. And we use it at Flint. It allows us to pull from our payroll provider, our Intact and Sage environment, QuickBooks with some of them that we're buying and Service Titan, our, our ERP. And uh, they they kind of create all of this stuff. I mean, we tried to roll out Domo and this is like so much better. It's unbelievable. So Bucks Analytics, and I think that they're going to continue to pick up. Most of the, my private equity friends in the country use Bucks Analytics to do their diligence on new companies. And in doing the diligence for these new companies, usually they transition into using them at the portfolio company for data visualization. So it's kind of a neat business that they're able to do kind of like that first step, which I have friends at a bunch of big accounting firms and the diligence process that Bucks is able to do through pulling out the data and be able to slap it into reports and pull ongoing. They're like, this is unbelievable. Like, this is so helpful. Like, it's better than what we can do with a team of auditors. And they populate meaningful reports throughout the diligence process. So, like, that data that gets pumped in during your diligence process is updated every single night at midnight. So, it's just fascinating. You're not having to guess, like, gosh, I hope they're having a good month, their last month of the before we close. It's just unbelievable. So, Bucks Analytics, I think, definitely takes the candle for that one. Is it specific to home services or is it broad no. industry? Well, I think we're the only one in home service that I, I think uses them. They're they're broad, so they work with, with everybody. That's amazing. I don't know if I, I didn't tell you earlier, but I love data businesses and especially analytics ones like that. So anything with numbers and data is, is pretty exciting and interesting to me. Yeah, I agree. It's it's mind blowing. Like you know, on these search fund boards and, you know, the amount of information and the legacy systems that some of the searchers like inherit and that they still use for entirely too long. I'm like, so you can't, you don't know this and you can't pull this information. And it's like, no, this system sucks. And I'm like, gosh, like every single one of these companies should be having like Bucks Analytics at least create their own dashboard separate because all these businesses are just so different that I just don't know how, like, there's not like a, big ERP that serves every single different individual market. Yeah, that's amazing. We're out of time, unfortunately, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing a little bit about what you're working on. This this easily could have been a couple hours episode. One day we'll be at Joe Rogan for small business, but not quite yet. Well, I, I hope I didn't bore anybody. I, I get pretty passionate about all this stuff. So it's been a pleasure and maybe I'll, I'll come back one day. I would love that. Yeah, we should definitely have you back. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling your friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Put In Strong, 
Cloverly Risk Strategies, and Oakborn Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast.